All right, well, thank you, worship team. If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be in verse 22 all the way into chapter 2, verse 10 today. And of course, we're continuing our series called Exiles. Uh, Peter is showing us what it looks like throughout his letter for Christians to live faithfully in a non-Christian world, in a world where the teachings of Jesus are not accepted uh, Peter is telling us and instructing us uh, to live out the faith even in the midst of such a culture. So before we dive into 1 Peter 1 and into chapter 2 today, uh, let me pray again and ask the Lord to bless His Word and help us to receive it well. So let's pray for that. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Jesus, You are the Word of God and You have given us Your Word. You've given us the Gospel. And I pray now that we would focus our hearts and minds and be receptive to what you have to say to us through your Holy Spirit. May you enlighten our minds today with your truth and transform us and change us to look more like you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want you to imagine a scenario with me. I know this is none of you or it's never been any of you, but imagine a family in the car driving to church on a Sunday morning you know, mom and dad have been arguing kind of all morning, frustrated. The kids are yelling at each other and hitting each other. And one of the little boys doesn't have his shoes. He's left his shoes at home, right? I'm not speaking from experience here, okay? Uh, <laughs> and you're like, what in the world, right? What is going on? What in the world? And then you walk in the doors of the church and then all of a sudden it's all smiles, right? And they look at you, people greet you and say, hey, how are y'all doing? Oh, we're doing great. We've never been better, right? I almost strangled my son, but we're good, right? And, and there's a level, obviously, of some insincerity there. There's a level of hypocrisy there, but it's kind of understandable. I mean, right, we all have hectic moments, of course. But now imagine this scenario, though, okay? Imagine a church, uh, a church where, you know, on the inside, there's just... There's just really some, some bitterness and there's some jealousy among the church members and they're argumentative and, and they kind of argue over silly things and, and some, some avoid others and there's just some real issues going on. But then when each of those church members go out in public to the grocery store or to work or wherever and church comes up, it's all smiles, right? Oh yeah, you should come check out our church. We have no problems, right? Now obviously... There's a level of hypocrisy there. There's a level of insincerity there, right? And look, I know, and you know, there's no such thing as a perfect church. You know why? Because there's no such thing as perfect people, right? So some people like to, you know, the world likes to look at the church and say, well, they're a bunch of hypocrites. And I usually say, yeah, that's right. <laughs> we are, but we're under the grace of God and we're trying. We're trying to live through God's grace to become more like Jesus, right? But you know what? Peter knows the importance Peter knows the importance of a church loving one another. He knows how important that's going to be to love one another with true sincerity and no hypocrisy because we are God's people living in a foreign world. We are God's people living in a strange land that is not truly our home. Our true citizenship is in heaven with Christ. And so we are in a very real sense aliens here on this earth. And so Peter knows that if we are going to help an unbelieving world want what we claim to have, right, the joy and the salvation of Jesus, if we're going to show that to them, then what Peter's going to tell us today is, you know what, we've got to get our own house in order first. 
Yes, we're called to be witnesses in this world for Christ. But if we can't love each other in the church family, Peter's going to tell us we've got to do that first if then we're going to love the world. So we see the main point of this section of his letter in verse 22. If you look with me at verse 22, Peter says this. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, right? And here's the command. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He says, we must do this. And, and you know, obviously this is one of the clear marks of, of being a true church, right? Being the people of God. The Scriptures tell us, that how, how will they know? How will people know if we really love the Lord? Well, we'll love one another. That's one of the clear distinctions and marks of a church. But Peter goes further, and he notice the descriptive words he uses here. He clarifies the type of love, right? He says it's earnest. So that means it's dedicated. It's deep. It's not a surface-level love. It is a real deep, sincere love for one another. But also, he says, it's from a pure heart. And that means that we love not just in a dedicated way to one another, but with the right motivations, right? Not, not for selfish gain, but so that we can truly improve the life of someone else. That's why we love. Pure heart, right motivations. Now, how do we do this, though? I mean, how, how do we do this? Like, in the church today, I mean, we're all busy and we've all got things going on and there's so many controversial things to think about in the world and even in just the, the Christian culture in America. There's so many dividing points and lines. I mean, how, how do we love one another in the church and why? Why do we do it? And I think that question is what Peter is answering here in verse 22 all the way into chapter 2 verse 10. And that's what we're going to see, the how and the why today. How do we love one another in the family of God? Well, the answer, in a very simply put way, is through the power of the gospel. Through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that does two things. It saves us and allows us, right, enables us to love one another, but it also sanctifies us. It continues to teach us as we go and mature in our faith how to love one another. So Peter's telling us here, that that's what's going on. The gospel, the word of God, is a power. It is powerful because it can change our status before God, but also grow us in our maturity to become Christ-like. So that's the first thing we see, the power of the gospel that saves. That's what Peter's talking about. Now, before we get into the verses, again, let me just define the word gospel, okay? We, we throw that word out a lot, and I just want to make sure we all understand what that word actually means. So the word gospel... It means the good news. The good news that Jesus lived, died, and was raised from the dead in our place for our sins to bring us into a peaceful relationship with God forever. That's the good news. In fact, Romans 1.16, Paul talks about how powerful this good news is, this, this gospel. He says, "...for I am not ashamed of the gospel." For it is the power of God for salvation. And look at what Peter says now, continuing in verse 23. He says, so love one another earnestly, right? From a pure heart, since you have been born again. 
You've been made new. You've been, you've been changed. You've been given a new identity, a new status. He says, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Through, the, through what? Through the living and abiding Word of God. Word of God is what is changing us. And notice in verse 25, we're going to come back to verse 24, he clarifies what the Word of God is. He says, but the Word of the Lord remains forever, and this Word is the good news. It's the good news that was preached to you, he says. So the gospel, the gospel message in the Word of God is living, Peter says, so it's active, it has life, it gives life. It makes us new. It is living, he says, but it's also abiding, right? It's lasting. It's enduring. It stands the test of time. So the gospel of Jesus is a power. It, it isn't just word, merely words or a thought in your head or something. that ha- It is a power. The gospel message is a power that pulls us out of this world system gives us a new birth, a new spiritual birth, a new status before God so that we can love one another. So that we can be in right standing before God. So the gospel saves, and that has to happen if we're going to love one another. But the meat of this is what Peter's getting to here, is that the gospel is a power also that sanctifies. It's not only does the gospel save you when you come to Jesus, it continues to change you. The word sanctify simply means to become more like Jesus over time. Let, let's keep reading. Look what Peter says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You know, when I was in middle school, all I wanted to do was get to high school. (laughs) And then when I was in high school, by the end of it, all I wanted to do was graduate and get to college. And guess what? By the end of college, all I wanted to do was graduate and go on to seminary. And then when I'm in seminary, all I want to do is finish and graduate and start working in full-time ministry. That, that was my life. I was just always looking for that next stage. Never satisfied. Always wanting to go to the next level. And isn't that how we are? And it's funny because when you're young, you just want to keep moving on and getting older. And then as you get older, you just want to go back to young again, right? But that's not the way we should think about the gospel and how we relate to its message. It's not something that we graduate from or we mature out of or move on to better things. When we talk about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is not just some kind of Sunday school story that you learn as a kid, and then when you're older and a more mature Christian adult, you start learning about all the really fun things, you know, like the end times and and whether or not Kirk Cameron's going to be left behind or not, right? That's the really interesting stuff we want to talk about. Some of you are like, what? And some of you are like, that is hilarious. Um, But you know what I mean? Like, we we don't move on 
from the gospel? The gospel is the Christian faith. It is the Christian message. Now, let me be clear. Hey, it is more than fine. It it is absolutely okay. There's a right time and there's a right place to talk about all the other things. Absolutely. There's good conversations to be had. There's good Bible studies to do about all these other kinds of issues within the Christian faith and in the Bible. We need to study the Bible from front to back and everything in between. Absolutely. But there's one central story. There's one central message that must be above all. It must be first, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. J.D. Greer, author and Christian pastor, says, the gospel is not just the diving board off of which we jump into the pool of Christianity. It's the pool itself. It is not only the way we begin in Christ, it's the way we grow in Christ. Let's read verse 2 and 3 again. And With that in mind, now read this kind of with, with a new mindset here. Look, look at what Peter says again. Think about what we just said. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it, by the gospel, you may grow up into salvation. Indeed, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now let me ask you, when's the last time you were around a hungry baby? Okay, me? this morning. All right. Let me tell you, when the baby's hungry, you feed the baby, right? But here's the thing. In our fallen nature, we are not inclined to naturally love one another earnestly from a pure heart. No, we are bent toward these sins that Peter just listed in verse one. That's what we're naturally inclined to do. So what do we have to do? What does that have to do with a hungry baby? That's what we have to be like. We have to develop a hunger We have to develop a thirst for the Word of God in our lives if we're actually going to conform to looking and acting and living more like Jesus. You're not going to magically overnight poof into a super Christian. You are not magically going to all of a sudden look a lot more like Jesus without the Word of God in your life. The Word of God is living and active and powerful. It is able to change you from the inside out, and it will if you dive deep into it with the right heart and mindset. It can radically change how we love. It's the only way we can put away, Peter says, these relational sins that he's talking about. Let's look at those again. Look Look at the list of things here in verse 1. Peter says, look, there's no way, there's no room for any of this in the family of God. There's no no place for any of these relational sins because of who we are now in Christ. Look at verse 1 again. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. You see, Peter is listing unloving characteristics because he wants us to think about the opposite of those things, right? In many ways, these are what define the world's idea of love. These characteristics, right? I mean, not on the surface level, not on what's visible, but if you look within the world's definition of love at the reality of our motivations, you see, you see these characteristics. You know, our, our world today has a very self-oriented view of love. It's really just based on emotion. It's based on how you feel, right? 
And so I think a lot of people today love others as long as they or that relationship or that friendship benefits you in some way, right? So maybe it bolsters your image or your reputation, or maybe it meets your emotional needs. So the world's, the world's way of love is very different than the Christian worldview of love. Because in the world, as soon as whomever you love, whether it be a co-worker, a relation, or a romantic, it doesn't have to be romantic, it could be just a friendship, right? Or a romantic relationship. It could be any kind of human relationship where you say you're loving someone, but as soon as they do not cater to your needs, you will drop it. You'll cut it off. So the world's way of love is very surface level, right? There's no depth. I mean, it's truly, it's truly weak because it really has no source of power, right? There's, there's no deep well to draw strength from. It's all emotional based. You see, the human heart is not strong enough to really endure what love must do. The human heart is too weak. It's too sinful to provide the kind of strength that love needs to survive. That's what Peter's saying here. Look at verse 24 and 25. I said we'd come back to verse 24. Here's why. Look what he says. He says, for all flesh, so all of humanity is who he's talking about. Me, you, all of us. All human flesh is like grass. And all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers. The flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. So the 21st century humanistic version of love, in the end, dies. It withers. It falls apart. It doesn't stand through the difficulties of the human life. It does not stand. So what stands? What carries you through your darkest days in your relationships with other people, especially within the church family. It's the word of the Lord. Think about how Jesus loves us. If you want the love of God to change the way you love others, you've got to focus on what Jesus has done for you already in the gospel. Because when you accept God's love and you're overwhelmed with, with gratitude and thankfulness, you know what all of a sudden becomes a lot easier? Extending that kind of love to others. Gratitude's really the key. Because if you're not thankful for the way Jesus has loved you, sacrificing himself, giving up all his privileges and the riches of heaven to come to this stinky, smelly earth and live a poor life and suffer at infinite cost so that your life could be bettered. If we don't understand and appreciate that, we will never love others. You see, this is, this is what I mean when I say we need to dwell on the gospel and how it affects us and, and how we treat others. I want us to, just to do almost like a, a biblical exercise here. I, I want us to go word by word of these key relational sins that Peter lists in verse 1 of chapter 2 here. And let's just think about how we struggle with this 
But what does the gospel tell us? What does Jesus show us? How do we draw power from him to overcome these sins? Think about that word malice. The word malice means having the intent or desire to do evil. You ever had intentional, uh, intentional impure desires in the way you treat others? Absolutely. You ever tried to be manipulative to someone? You ever tried to somehow get something out of someone but kind of put on a smile to make them think that you're sincere? We have all been malicious. We are guilty of this. But in the gospel, here we go. What do we see? We see Jesus doing the opposite. We see him treating us with benevolence, not maliciousness. He is intent, but he's intent on doing good to us. He's intent on shaping us into who we need to be so that we may become good like him. You see that? You see the power of the gospel? When you appreciate the benevolence of Jesus, your maliciousness begins to fade. What about that word deceit? That the word deceit means the action or practice of deceiving someone by concealing or misrepresenting the truth. And I'm not talking about just like, well, hey, how big was that fish you caught? Oh, man, it was like this big, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about super serious issues where we are deceptive towards other people or perhaps, you know, we kind of exaggerate the goodness of our lives in front of others to make them think that we're a lot holier than we really are. We want people to like us, and so we speak deceptive language, right? But what do we look at in the gospel? We see Jesus not being deceptive. We see him being truth. Jesus is truth, and he brings truth to us so that we may live in his truth and in the truth of reality. And he saves us from the great deceiver, Satan himself. Do you see that? When you gaze into what Christ is, his truthfulness, your deceit begins to fade. What about that word hypocrisy? That word means the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. Of course, right? We're all guilty. We all act like we have our lives all put together in front of certain people. But in reality, behind closed doors, we're a completely different person. But what do we see in the gospel? Jesus, a man of perfect integrity, a perfect holy man. He is our moral standard. He's sinless and he died to save us from our hypocrisy so that he could make us people of genuine faith and integrity for his glory. You see that? As you gaze into the gospel of Jesus and appreciate his integrity, your hypocrisy begins to fade. What about that word envy? Oh man, a feeling of discontentment or resentful longing because of someone else's possessions, qualities, or luck. Have you ever looked at someone else's life and in your head, you don't even say it out loud because you know that'd be kind of weird, but in your mind you think, I wish I had their life. I wish I had their house. I wish I had their car. I wish I had their life. I wish I was more like that person. They seem like they've got it all put together. Man, we think that. We do. We struggle with envy and we want what others have. But in the gospel, Jesus has given us everything we could ever want. In the gospel, Jesus is infinitely generous to us. He gave up his own life and the riches of heaven so that he could give them to us. Do you see that? As you gaze into the gospel of Jesus, 
and you start to appreciate his generosity, your envy begins to fade. Look at this, slander, the last word. That word means to make false and damaging statements about someone. Again, guilty. We're guilty. But when we look into the gospel, Jesus speaks positively about you all the time to God the Father. Did you catch that? We tear others down with our words. But Jesus shows us in the gospel what it looks like to always speak positively about you to God the Father. How do we know that? Romans 8.34, listen to this. Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Let me tell you something. you got a lot of voices out there condemning you. Satan is the chief accuser. And he loves nothing more to, than to accuse you and try to make it sound in the great courtroom of heaven that you are guilty. And the reality is we are guilty, but we have an advocate. There's a great accuser, but there's a better advocate. Jesus Christ, listen to this. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is, present tense right now, as we speak, interceding. For you. Ha! How about that? Jesus Christ. Do you see it? Do you see the sacrificial, unconditional love, infinite love, enduring love that Christ has for you? And so why? What is, what is he doing? He wants us to extend that to others. You see, in Christ, we have a deep well of love to draw from that never runs dry. It's an endless supply. And so therefore, Ephesians 4.32, Paul said, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You see, so we can. We can love one another earnestly with a pure heart because... The gospel has already brought us into right relationship with God and it continues to stretch us and challenge us and change us and shape us and mold us as we look deeper into it. That's power. But why? What is God doing? Why all this love? What, what, what is he doing? Well, the why behind why we should love one another in the family of God, in the church, is because we are His household. We are God's household. Look what Peter says in chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. He says, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Okay, so we've talked about how to love one another, but here's the why. Jesus is building something amazing. We are all part of something much bigger than ourselves. So we can't bring selfishness into the church. We can't bring that envy in here. We can't bring that manipulative behavior in here. Why? Because Jesus is building something that's bigger than just one or two individuals. Collectively, we are a spiritual house. Which is exactly why we must love one another earnestly. 
deeply and committed with a pure heart, with the right motivations, because God is purposefully building us into his spiritual house, stone by stone. That's who we are. There's really three main purposes of God's church, of God's family, of God's household. To worship God, to walk with him and grow in our faith together and to witness to this world. That's, if you look, this is evident not just here in 1 Peter 2, but throughout the whole New Testament. That's what you see. If you study the New Testament church, you see these three things happening over and over and over. In fact, that's why we built our vision statement here at Kernan on these three things, these three truths, these three commands. That's what we're doing. In fact, that's our mission statement right here. Kernan exists to glorify God by making disciples who do these three things. Worship with authenticity. Walk in community and witness as we go out in this world. Look at what Peter says in verse 5. He says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood listen to this, to offer spiritual sacrifices. That's worship, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's talking about a lifestyle that offers spiritual sacrifices, worships God. Paul talks about this too in Romans 12, 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. When we sacrifice as Jesus has sacrificed for us, when we do that for each other, that's spiritual worship. We are worshiping the God who gave his life for us by imitating him. And not only worship, but you know what else? We should walk with the Lord and grow in our faith together in community with other brothers and sisters. This is a family. That's who we are here at this church. That's what any Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church is. It is a localized family of God. Notice in verse 5, we are each individual stones, Peter says. But what is Jesus doing? He's putting us together, right? So individually, yeah, we come in these doors as individuals. But when you join this family of God, you are a stone that Christ is joining with other stones. He's uniting us by his blood. He is putting us together to form a house so we can have this brotherly love Peter is talking about here in this whole passage. That's why. And guess what? That's not all. As we love one another in the church, we are able to reflect the love of God to a world that doesn't understand true biblical love. They look at us and say, well, what is love? And we say, it's, it's this. It's sacrificial. It's the love of Christ. The church family is called to be witnesses. We're called to be ambassadors in this world. How do we know? Look what, look what Peter says in verse 9. If you skip down to verse 9, Peter says this. He says, but you, speaking about the church, you church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Remember the list? We just went through the list in verse 1. How do you overcome those sins? How do you start loving each other 
with true sacrificial love, your spouse, your kids, your coworker, your friend, your church member. You start gazing into the gospel and you look at what you've been given and you say, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve for Jesus to speak so positively about me all the time. I can't believe that I've been speaking negatively about so-and-so. Lord, please forgive me and have mercy and let me speak the kind heart, the kind tender-hearted words that you speak. Let me forgive as you have forgiven me. And when the world sees that, when the unbelieving world who looks at Jesus and says, I don't need that, but when they see that, when they see you and me loving one another earnestly from a pure heart, they say, actually, you know what? I'm interested in that because my world's falling apart. But this church, they're not a bunch of perfect people, and I know they don't have their acts all together, but I see a sincere desire to love one another. See, our goal at Kernan, it's not to form some kind of Christian bubble where we seclude ourselves from the world in fear or anger. God forbid, that's not what we're doing. What do we seek to do? Through the power we're talking about, we want to form a Christian community of love here so that we can go out there so that we can go out and show the world what the love of Christ really is. Because He is our foundation. He is our strength and our power. And that's the, that's the last thing we see here in these verses. In verses 6 through 8, Peter, Peter says, you know, this is all based on this, that Jesus is the foundation of this household. Look at what he says in verse 6 through 8. He says, For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, the NIV study Bible gives some helpful explanation I want to read to you about what a cornerstone was in ancient times. Listen to this. It says, The cornerstone was the most important stone in an ancient building. It was the first stone to be set in the foundation, and all other blocks were plumbed to it. So believers take their place in God's spiritual house by squaring their lives to the plans and purposes of Christ. Do you see that? That's what God is building here. That's what He's building in every church that worships Jesus Christ as the only Lord and Savior of this world. He is taking you and you and you and you and you and me and He's uniting us together in ways that we don't fully even understand. He's putting us together. Not so that we can come here for an hour, sing a couple of songs, say a couple of prayers, and then go home and not see each other and not communicate with each other for six more days until we come back the next week. No, 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 no. He is putting you and you and you and me here together in this church family for a special reason. He's building a spiritual house. That's what he's doing. And he is the foundation. He's uniting us together through him. But notice in verse 8. Before we conclude, I want you to see this. Notice it says in verse 8 that Jesus will be a stumbling block for many people. And he'll be offensive. 
Because the gospel message is offensive, you see. Without Jesus as the exclusive and only way to God and eternal life, without the gospel, a church would really be no different than any other kind of social club or organization or nonprofit. I mean, you ever thought about that? Without the exclusive claim that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of all life, we would be no different than the YMCA or anything else. So when we invite people, listen to this, when we invite people to the Christian faith, we're not inviting them to join some kind of club or a community or organization or some good programming. We are inviting them to join and know a person, Jesus himself. One of the great benefits and responsibilities of that relationship we have with God through Jesus is that we get to be a part of this building project. We get to be a part of his family, of his household. Another living stone each one of us put right where he wants us to use us for his glory. I love how Peter kind of summarizes this part of his letter in verse 10. Look at verse 10. He says, once, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people once you had not received mercy, but now, now you've received mercy. May we live our lives in this church to one another, extending the mercy that we've received from the Lord earnestly with the right motivations to one another. Man, may we do that. May we be faithful in that every single waking moment. The world should be able to look at our church family and see not, not people who act like they've got it all figured out or put together. That's not, that's not us. Never will be. Man, but may they see us struggling and limping along together, pursuing the one Savior, the one foundation, who shows us what true love really is. May we love one another the same way Christ has loved us. I hope this message has encouraged you today. I hope the Holy Spirit has encouraged your heart. And maybe He's convicted you. Maybe, maybe in many of your relationships in this church or in your home, you're being unloving. We all have room there to improve. But may we, may we spend some time in prayer today just thanking God, first of all, for His great love for us. But number two, to ask Him to change us. To change us from the inside out so that we really experience His love and, and appreciate it to a degree that we can't help but let it overflow out of us to one another. Can we pray for those two things? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are so grateful and thankful that you have loved us in this way. 
at infinite cost to yourself. Lord, you loved us not for manipulative, selfish gain, not so that you could get something out of it, but so that you could give. You could give everything you have to us. So Lord, may we look to the gospel. Jesus, let let our hearts and our thoughts be fixed on you and grateful and appreciative. Lord, let our hearts overflow with gratitude for what you've done and what you do always. You continue to show us your love even when we are unlovable, when we are unfaithful, when we are uncommitted. You are committed to us. You are faithful always. So Lord, change us. Let the gospel power that you provide change us so that we may always love one another in this church earnestly from a pure heart. Strengthen that love in us, Lord, here at Kernan, so that we may proclaim your excellencies to a lost and dying world. It's in your name we pray. Amen.